Thanks, Nicole. Uh, well, good evening. Welcome to UniChurch. I want to add my welcome to Ryan. So great to have you come along as we think through what this part of God's Word says. Uh, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. And why don't we pray together and ask God to help us to understand this Word, these three or four accounts that are going on in this part of Matthew's Gospel, that actually, as God promises, that through His Word and by His Spirit, He might focus us on His Son and change the way we see the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we come here together tonight with all sorts of things going on in our world. Things of joy, things of sadness, things of hardship. But we are so thankful that you don't leave us in the dark, that you have spoken. And we pray now that as we come and look through this account of your Son and see the life of Jesus, that we might see clearly that, that your Spirit tonight would help us to see who He is and what we are here for. And we might walk away having heard you speak changed. We pray this. In the name of your Son. Amen. Well, growing up, I was fascinated by a magician or an illusionist called David Copperfield. Here's a picture of him on the screen, a bit close for you. Now, this guy is incredible. Um, he's done all sorts of illusions. One of them was to make a train disappear before people's eyes and then reappear. Like, you know, that, that's pretty cool. I've seen people do it with coins, but a train is massive. He made the Statue of Liberty disappear in the U.S., like crazy. He's also been known to, to walk through seemingly the Great Wall of China. And that's incredible. Usually those sort of feats are left for someone like the claims of Jesus. He, he's apparently walked through a wall, it was just a door, but it wasn't the Great Wall of China. I actually got the privilege of seeing David Copperfield live uh, in my teens. Uh, he was in Sydney and I went along as a family and saw him do these amazing illusions. I can tell you, like it was months afterwards, I was still trying to be a magician. I just wanted to do magic tricks, right? I wanted to be able to do cool stuff like that. I mean, what kid doesn't want to do magic tricks, right? Magic tricks are awesome. Now, it's not because making a rabbit appear out of a hat has any kind of lasting effect on society, right? Magicians don't actually do anything helpful. They just kind of go, whoa, you pulled a rabbit out. That's amazing. And we're like, wow. But what it does is it makes the magician look awesome. Right? That's why we want to do magic tricks. That's why we want to find out how to do them so we can do them to others and they can go, whoa, look at all your skills. You're amazing. But today I want to ask you, what's the difference between magic and a miracle? What's the difference between magic and a miracle? For many, the idea of a miracle isn't just a popularity stunt, but the prayer of a desperate mother or a suffering son, a desire to see the seemingly impossible made possible. One of the differences between magic and a miracle is actually where the credit goes. See, with magic, it's all about the magician. But when a miracle happens, it's often the supernatural that we give credit to. Or if it, if it doesn't happen, if we've been asking for a miracle and it doesn't come about then it's God that we have a go at. It's God we get angry at. How dare He not bring about this miracle? Well, here in Matthew 17, Matthew wants to lay out for us a series of accounts to help us to see who Jesus is. And we start out with a, a desperate man who has a son who's been suffering terribly. But it's not just any old sickness. In verse 18, we read that this, this boy has a demon. Now, when you hear that, our 21st century minds today, we kind of go, oh, this is a bit weird. I mean, we don't really talk about demons. We don't really think this realm exists. You know, we're in the realm of, of magic, of illusions and na naivety. 
This is the sort of story that, you know, you're told when you're a kid, under the sheet at night with a torch under your chin. There was this boy, right? And he had a demon. And everyone's like, ooh, and we get scared. And then one of the other kids at the back farts, like, ah, what was that? And then everyone's afraid and they don't sleep all night, right? That's the realm we kind of feel like we're in. Except in this story, it takes a twist where what you expect to happen doesn't. Jesus' sidekicks that have been given authority to, to heal and cast out demons in, in a few chapters earlier, they can't perform the miracle. Come with me, have a look at verse 14. Let's work out what is going on here and what it means for us and our knowledge of Jesus. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before Jesus. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son. Because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And many of our Bible translations here say this boy had epilepsy. And you kind of understand why. It's a desire to bring um, the observations of the first century where this boy was shaking and kind of had these sort of fits into the diagnosis of the 21st century. But verse 18 shows us that it wasn't epilepsy. Look, verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. The issue here is demonic. Demonic possession. I think it's important that we, that we make clear tonight that epilepsy is not the same as demonic possession. Everyone who has epilepsy or other forms of sickness doesn't automatically mean they're possessed by a demon. That's not the view of the Bible. The Bible has a, a place for sickness. There's all sorts of sickness throughout the Bible. But it also recognizes a spiritual realm. When it comes to the realm of angels and demons, when we hear these events going on, we usually tend toward one of two errors. One of two errors. The first is to think there's a demon behind every bad action. So something bad happens and we're like, oh, you know, that's Satan trying to get at me. Or there's a demon behind this. You know, you fail an exam. A demon set this exam. You know, they did it. They know. Or, you know, you're trying to get a car park and someone beats you in. They're a demon. Satan hates me here. Or, or the one that we all do, you sneeze and what do you say? Bless you. <laughs> that phrase actually comes from people thinking that when you sneeze, you leave your own body. And that's a moment when the demons can get into your body, then when you come back, there's a demon there. So people say, bless you. I kid you not. Wikipedia said it's true. It must be, right? <laughs> it's actually part of where it does come from. Now, one error is to say that, that Satan's behind everything. He's everywhere. Every little chair you lift, oh, there he is trying to get you. Look out. He's, he's, he's doing everything. The other view, though, is just as bad. It's the view that the materialistic world we live in is all there is all that we see and can feel and touch, that that is all there is. Friends, one of Satan's biggest victories is to make us think he doesn't exist. What the Scriptures tell us is that there is a bigger war going on, that Satan and his demons are trying to pull us away from God at, at every opportunity. And sometimes people think that for the Christian, that you can be possessed by an evil spirit or by a demon. But the Scriptures don't allow that view. The Christian can't be possessed by a demon because the Christian has God, the Spirit, living in us. And the demon would have to boot the Spirit out. That's impossible for that to happen. Oh, Satan tempts us and evil spirits are working around us all the time. But kind of like one of those Zorb balls. You know those Zorb balls that you kind of hop into and you can go down a hill and go, woo, 
and roll around, you know, I'm not getting many nines, people are like, oh, we'll see you later. There's a big plastic ball that you're inside of, right? And you can zip it up and people can push you around and kick you down a hill. It's kind of what it's like to be a Christian in the world of demons. If you trust in Jesus, then you're safe inside the ball, that, that, that God the Spirit lives in you and, and He's shaping you and molding you and Satan can't get inside the ball, but He's on the outside poking in going, what about this? And kind of rolling your ball in front of stuff that you know you don't want, you shouldn't want, but oh man, it looks good. And, and he puts it in front of us and we go, you know what? I think it's better outside the ball than in. And we start to unzip the ball and, and Satan lures us out by our own evil desires. Oh, Satan is trying to pull us everywhere. Trying to say that there are better things than Jesus. There's more to your life than this religion stuff that actually, just don't worry about it. You won't surely die. Don't worry about God. He's been lying from the beginning and he's trying to pull us all aside. But the problem in Matthew 17 isn't the existence of a demon. But it's the disciples' inability to have control over it. See, in Matthew 10, Jesus had said this, summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and heal every disease and sickness. So the question for us is, what's going wrong? What's going on here with these disciples that they can't do what Jesus had given them seemingly authority to be able to do? And the answer to that question is incredibly profound for you and me. See, Jesus in verse 17 of chapter 17 diagnoses the real problem. And he, he fixes our eyes not on the existence of a demonic realm, but on the evil that meant the disciples couldn't heal. Look at verse 17 of Matthew 17. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus' issue here, the problem with why these people can't heal, these disciples can't cast out this demon, is the perversion of their unbelief. If you want to head into right under, we'll spend a bit of time here. It's the perversion of unbelief. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, well, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. So often I hear people saying that the reason someone hasn't been healed is because they didn't have enough faith. The reason you don't have blessing in your life is because you've, you, don't, you don't trust God enough. You've got, got not got enough faith. You, know, you need to have more faith, then God will do it. You're the problem. You're why you're not healed. You just haven't got enough faith. And they sometimes cite this passage. But if you look carefully, Jesus makes it crystal clear that it's not the amount of faith that matters. It can't be. Have a look at verse 20. For truly I tell you, he says to the disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed... You'll tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Right? The issue here isn't the amount of faith they have. Jesus is saying you've got faith, just enough of a mustard seed. If I brought a mustard seed in to show you tonight, you wouldn't be able to see it because they're tiny. He's saying it doesn't matter if you've got the smallest amount, the tiniest amount. You could move a mountain if you had the, the smallest amount. The issue isn't the amount of faith they have but it's the poverty of their faith. See, faith is a word that's shifted meanings for us. To most of our society uh, and the world around us, faith means some sort of 
anti-intellectual, unreasonable superstition. You know, you just got to have faith. When, when, when nothing's working out in life, you just got to have faith. With those exams, you turn the paper over and there's none of the questions you study. You just got to have faith that, that, that the answers will be okay. You know, you just got to believe that everything will turn out. Just shut your eyes and, and let it go. Others of us in society think that faith is some sort of religious superstition, some supernatural experience where you're, you're over, overpowered with a sense of, of belief. I've just got this amazing faith. You've got an amazing faith where against all odds you hold out, you can hold on. God's given you an incredible faith. But faith's just a normal word. It's not really a spiritual or a religious word in any way. Faith is something we express all the time in all sorts of different situations, describing normal things that you and I do every day. Like for instance, who here has ever been in a car? Show of hands, been inside a car. All right, and one that's moving? Okay, good, just wanted to check. All right, now you got in a car that has an engine that's going to propel you forward up to 100, 110 kilometers an hour if you're staying within the speed limit, right? It's going to go at a lot, a lot of pace. And then hopefully the driver's going to put their foot on a brake and the brake's going to slow you down. Now, you've got faith that the brake will slow you down when you get in that car. Who here has gotten in a car and never checked the brakes? Show of hands. Look at you all. You all had faith that the brakes would work, but you didn't really look very much. You figured, well, the car looks all right. It's got a warrant of fitness. We reversed out of the driveway, put the brake on a little bit. We did it when we we're going slow. Maybe it'll work when we're going fast. But all of us have put our lives into the hands of trusting, relying, depending on the brakes of a car, hurtling ourselves at 100 kilometers an hour towards other things and other people coming the other way. We've had faith. We've depended on that. We've relied on that. It's not supernatural. None of us got in the car and went, wow, you've got a lot of faith. Or maybe you did. Maybe you got in the car with one of my sons and you're like, wow, that's a lot of faith. Because <laughs> you're worried about who you're trusting, right? You're like, well, what is going on here? Now, it's not supernatural. It's based on evidence. You, you trust, you rely, you depend. Every time you read the word faith, I want you to cross it out and write, trust, rely, depend. Because it just helps us, you know? People say, oh, you just got amazing faith. You go, yeah, it's cool. Rather than, if, if, well, imagine someone came up to you and went, you've got amazing dependence. You'd be like, yeah, but dependence in what? So the word dependence makes us shift to think about what am I depending in, but faith kind of stands as its own. It's been, it's been ruined. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much faith you have. What matters is the object of your faith, what you're relying on, what you're trusting in what you're depending on, right? All the faith in the world, it's not going to make your brakes work. It's not going to slow you down. You can have the most amount of faith ever. I mean, I've got so much faith, but if you've got no brakes, who cares? <laughs> you're going to go splat. It's the object of your faith that matters. And once you understand the word faith, you start to see the difference between magic and miracles. You see, magic demonstrates the magician's control of, of gaining and manipulating the, the events of the world around us and the magician's dominating the forces, forces of nature or, or the illusion that's there or perhaps you know, this idea of, of the occult and using rituals and spells to gain control of things. That's what magic is about. Whereas miracles demonstrate someone else's control. Miracles are when God acts in a way that's beyond our understanding and probably or possibly in response to our prayers or requests. 
See, prayer is expressing faith in God. And it seems here that the disciples have perverted the point of the power they were given to point people to Jesus, to heal and say it's come from Jesus. And instead, they've kind of focused it on themselves. They've gone, look at this cool magic trick. Look at what we can do. We can heal. And look, let's be honest. If you could pick some superpowers or some, you know, some miraculous powers, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't you be like, this would be great. There's some part of me that would be like, I'd love to be able to heal people and take them out of their misery. That's great. But if I'm honest with you, I think the greatest thing is then people would go, whoa, you're amazing, Rowan. And we want to focus it on ourselves. I mean, that's why we want to do magic tricks. So people will go, whoa, you're awesome. I thought about learning one for tonight, trying to show you an amazing magic trick, but I'd just be proving my point. Because I'd show it to you and you'd be like, whoa. Well, actually, you'd say, well, you're hopeless, but whoa, aren't you great? That's amazing. And then you get the credit. And that's what's going on here. These disciples have been trying to heal to get the credit. They've, They've missed that actually it's expressing faith in someone else to heal miracles, demonstrate God's control, that He's in control when He responds to our prayers. In Mark's Gospel, Mark tells us the issue with why Jesus, why the disciples couldn't heal this boy was because they didn't pray and fast. Now, prayer and fasting kind of go together. Fasting is, is the practice of going without food for a while to remind you that you're dependent on God, that God's the one that provides and therefore, to, to pray to Him and, and, and depend on Him, as you say, can you please, Lord, see this thing come about? You can't arm wrestle God into doing it by prayer and fasting, but you're coming to Him to say, I trust you to see it happen. The disciples here are twisting the power of God to be a display of their own glory, all the while missing that it's not them that heals or casts out demons, but the one they have faith in, the one they depend on. Here's an implication for us today. Prayer must never become magic. Some kind of spell that's going to force the hand of God. Prayer is asking God for the things that we want or that we need. And in asking God, we're acknowledging both God's power to give it if He wishes, but also His sovereignty to, to give or withhold what we ask. So there's no point you coming and asking me to pray for you as if God's going to listen to me because I'm the pastor at Auckland AV and Uni Church. He's not going to listen to me anymore than he's going to listen to the Christian sitting next to you. Now, I'm very happy to pray with you and to pray for you. I'd love to. But the Christian sitting alongside us has exactly the same access to God as you do or any other Christian does or I do. You can't get closer to God than having God the Spirit live in you and trusting in Jesus. Every Christian has full access to God the Father. If you're in Christ, you're as close as you can get. And there's no one else between you and God other than Jesus. He's the one who brings you to Him. Now, the power of prayer doesn't lie in the person who prays. That's magic. The power of prayer lies in the person to whom we pray. That's faith in action. Now here, we come across this picture of God who is in control, of God who can do anything. And the issue with the disciples is they don't have, well, faith in the right thing. The issue isn't that the disciples didn't have enough faith. The issue is the poverty of their faith, that it was kind of 
misguided, in the wrong place. We just heard last week that Peter, James and John had gone up the mountain and they'd seen Jesus transfigured before them. That, that Elijah was there and Moses was there, symbolizing the whole Old Testament. And, and they met there with Jesus and then God came and this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. We've seen this amazing glorified picture of who Jesus is. The other nine disciples hadn't been up on that mountain. They're down trying to heal and it's not kind of working. They hadn't seen Jesus for who he truly was. And actually they don't truly get why he's come. They think Jesus is kind of like a a bit of a magic trick. Here to wow the world, to heal people from their sickness, to, to bring up a big crowd that people will be like, oh, this is awesome. I love being part of Jesus' band and some of you might get these powers and people will go, wow, you're amazing. Did you know 100% of the people Jesus healed still died? They still died. Thinking that Jesus was here just to bring healing and these amazing miracles misses the incredible nature of what He's here for. They've missed the key bit. They've missed the direction Jesus was going, the destination He was here for. It's, It's like imagining... You get on a bus and you want to get on a bus to go home. It's the right bus. It's the blue bus. You're sure of it. But as you get on it, it starts going a different direction. The bus has kind of got a different number on the front. And, and you, you, but you think, no, I, I think it's going this way. And then you, you start getting freaked out because it's making turns. And it kind of takes you across the other side of the motorway towards the eastern suburbs. And you're like, oh, I don't know how to get back from over here. I don't know what's on the other side of the number one. Well, that's, that's my world. I don't know what happens out east. Sorry if that's you. Um, you know, I, I know there's Howick and... Hobbits, or I don't know, something like that out there, right? And you're like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get off the bus? How am I going to get back? This is bad. And you start getting distressed at this reality because while you've got the right thing, it's a bus, it's going a different direction than what you think. The disciples here jumped on the right bus called Jesus, but they thought it was going to a destination called fame and glory and magic, of personal glory, where, they'd look, where people would look at them as special because they were so focused on what they wanted, on their own glory, that they missed an even more glorious destination. They missed where Jesus was going and why that is so important. Where was Jesus going? Well, Matthew tells us again, he puts front and center what the disciples missed themselves in the next section of this story. Look at verse 22. As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man, which is Jesus' name for himself, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. They missed that Jesus had come to die. Now, it makes sense that they were distressed. Anyone says, look, I'm going to die. That's distressing. But they missed the second half of what he said. They missed the end. That Jesus said that he would rise again. And on the third day, he'd be raised up. He was saying, this is what I've come for. I've come to lay down my life. I've come to rise again. The resurrection wasn't just like, oh, he's going to come back to life and die again. The resurrection was an Old Testament picture of the coming judgment of God, when God would raise all people to life, either eternal life or eternal death from that point on. It was the start of the end of this world and the beginning of God's new order. And they had missed who Jesus was. Turned him into a party trick. 
to think Jesus is merely a miracle worker, to make a few people's lives a bit better, to make our lives a bit better, to see us get through life without as many hardships and to kind of have some sort of purpose in life is a gross misunderstanding of Jesus. That's why the disciples couldn't heal the demon-possessed boy. They didn't know what they were trusting Jesus for. They didn't know what they were trusting Jesus for. Let me ask you tonight, what are you trusting Jesus for? What are you depending on Him for? What are you relying on Him to be or to do? See, trusting the right Jesus for the wrong thing is only going to land us in distress. But if you recognize who He is and what He has come to do, then you get to share in what He's come to bring. Life that lasts forever. Which is why, is why Matthew tells us this next incredibly odd encounter with Peter and the temple tax collector. Come and see what Jesus says about him and us. Verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, the temple tax was not a Roman tax. It didn't go to Caesar or to the government, right? It had nothing to do with Jesus' statement in Matthew 22 that you're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. This was a Jewish tax that God had instituted to, to represent who God's people were. If you were part of God's people, you would pay this tax each year. It comes out of Exodus 30. Come and have a look. It's on the screen. The Lord spoke to Moses. When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as they are registered. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Everyone who is registered must pay a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 jiras to the shekel. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Each man who is registered 20 years old or more must give this contribution to the Lord. The wealthy may not give more and the poor may not give less than half a shekel when giving the contribution to the Lord to atone for your lives. Take the atonement price from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. This temple tax really was a really small amount of money. It wasn't huge. Every Israelite was to pay, the rich and the poor all the same. And what it did was recognize that every person of God's people needed to be ransomed, needed to be bought out of their slavery to their rebellion against God, to sin, and needed God to atone, to, to make them at one with Him for their lives because they had rejected Him and failed to trust God as God, that they were deserving of death and judgment and hell. And this temple tax it wasn't the payment for their sin, but a recognition that the temple, the place where the, the sacrifices were offered, was the place where their sins were atoned for. When God accepted the sacrifice of the high priest, when an animal was slaughtered uh, for the people, because if you reject the God who gives life, then you're rejecting life itself. You're saying, I want death. But, but as they slaughtered an animal in the altar and the temple, 
It was like God was pouring out His, his wrath on them. The, the, the animal died and you didn't need to. And paying the temple tax was kind of a way of registering, yeah, I'm in, I'm, I'm with them. Kind of like your membership fees, right? I'm part of God's people. And, and the sacrifices that the high priest is offering and the fellowship offerings and the thanks offerings, they're all on behalf of me as part of God's people. So that God would see them as part of His people, would regard them as forgiven, and they could be at one with Him. The temple tax had nothing to do with government taxes as we know it, and everything to do with who God is and who we are. See, in verse 25 in Matthew 17, when Peter went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? Which his name was Simon Peter. From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or strangers? Jesus here gives us an illustration of earthly kings and the way earthly kings work. Right? Earthly kings collect taxes from their subjects. Right? The, the sons of the king, the prince and all his family, they don't need to pay taxes because the money all comes to them and their family. And so Jesus is saying, so if you think about a king and who taxes are paid to, who, who is the one that has to pay? Is it, is it the royal family? Do they need to pay their taxes to themselves? Or is it the subjects to the kingdom, the strangers who aren't part of the royal family? And Peter thinks about it, and he's like, well, no, it's, it's the strangers that have to pay, not, not the royal family, not the king's sons. And then look at what Jesus says, correcting Peter's view of him. Verse 26, then the sons are free. I like to imagine it, he said it more like this, Peter, then the sons are free. See, this isn't really about paying taxes at all. It's about helping the disciples know who Jesus is. He doesn't need to pay the tax because he is the son. He'd be paying it to himself. It's an incredible claim here that Jesus is God. And if the disciples had heard why he came and recognized who he was, if they'd been listening to him as God the Father had said at the transfiguration, then they'd understand that Jesus is the one who would make atonement. He's the one who, even though he didn't need to, would actually lay down his life and pay an incredible cost for them. That's where he was heading to his death in their place. Offering forgiveness, offering people access to God. He was going to be the sacrifice for us all. He didn't need to pay some temple tax to prove he was part of the people of God. He was God himself coming to pay the ultimate price. But despite that reality, despite being willing and about to pay the ultimate price for all humanity. And even though he doesn't have to, to show both to Peter who he is and what he's about to do, he tells Peter, verse 27, But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. Now, this is not advice on how to pay tax, right? This is not what we're to do. We're not to go out and kind of go off the end wharf on the pier and kind of get a fish and go, ah, you know, no, no coin in here. Ah, Jesus was wrong. This is not it at all. This is not advice on how to pay tax. It's, it's descriptive of what we're on, not prescriptive of, you know, here's the message that God says He'll provide for you no matter what. Not at all what He's saying here, although He does say that in different areas. It's a demonstration of the power of God 
at the person of Jesus and the role that he has. So the temple tax symbolized the whole Old Testament law, the whole sacrificial system, what God had set up that was a good thing, but it was a shadow waiting forward for the time when the reality would come. And here is Jesus saying, the son is here. I don't need to pay the temple tax. I'm about to pay the most incredible price ever. Paul in Galatians 4 puts it this way. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't have to keep the law. He wrote the law. But He came into the world to live a perfect life under the Old Testament law so he might share with those who were under the law the incredible provision of God. Jesus came not to do some magic trick just to heal some sick people or give people a bit of a better existence of life or some cool powers to exercise some demons on the side. He came so that you and I might be called sons of God. Now, ladies, you might want to go, I want to be a daughter of God. Well, you do, but you actually want to be a son because the sons are the ones that inherit and are the ones who will be heirs. And Jesus is calling all those who trust in him heirs, that you inherit the universe, that you are sons of God. You can call God your father and the new creation, your home, that you are a child of God, freed from the law, freed from our sinful acts that have caused us to experienced death and judgment and hell. And now we've been forgiven because of what Jesus would do. The disciples were caught up in doing magic tricks that made them look good when what was on offer was sonship with God. As Jesus provides the payment for himself and for Peter in this coin, he's showing ironically that neither of them needed to pay it. Because as Peter trusts in Jesus, he relies on who Jesus is and where he's heading. As Peter gets more and more of who Jesus is and he trusts in him, he too is called a son of God. Let me ask you tonight, what excites you most about the Christian life? What makes you go, yes, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. I'm really interested in checking out Christianity because of this. You know, is, it, is it the blessings? Is it, is, it, is it the miracles that, that, that God can potentially heal? He doesn't promise that he will, but he says sometimes he, he might. Is it the glory of being part of God's family? What is it that you love about the Christian life? The perversion of the disciples' faith was they missed that Jesus was the Son and that he came to die so they too might be called sons of God at the resurrection. Jesus says, for those who really trust and rely and depend in him, that we are sons. Let me ask you tonight, have you grasped the incredible reality of our identity? That if we trust in him, we are called sons of God. 
oh, we need to stop mucking around with the things of this world and thinking, oh, Jesus is here to make my life a little bit better. I mean, yes, it's brilliant to have a relationship with him now. It's incredible that we have God's Spirit living in us so we can understand this. It's amazing to be able to call God our Father, but we can do that all because of what Jesus has done. The amazing thing is experiencing the joy of being called a child of God, being free from the law's condemnation and experiencing forgiveness that only Jesus offers. Have you seen how incredible Jesus is? Are you on the right bus going to the right destination? At the end of this passage, there's a little twist in the story of what this means for us. We see Jesus not standing on his rights, he doesn't say this temple tax. Do you know who I am? Like, that's what I would have done, right? Do you know who my father is? It's his temple. You know? How dare you tell me that I've got to pay this tax, Peter? Get back out there and say, grow up. He doesn't do that. He puts others first, accepting their obligations and requirements. He's the creator of the universe. All things were made by him and for him and through him. But he does this. He accepts their obligations and requirements for the sake of serving them. So often I find myself wanting to stand on my rights, at least internally, right? Demanding what is rightfully mine. But here is the creator of all, the Son of God, who doesn't stand on his rights, but lays down his life for us and says, trust me. Just a chapter earlier, Jesus said these words, that if anyone wants to gain his life, he must lose it. To pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him. If you want to be a son of God, if you want to trust in Jesus and throw away a life of magic, of making things just a little bit better, and see what life to the full looks like, trusting in Jesus that He is the King, and that He's coming back again, and that we are called sons of God, then Jesus says, stop serving yourselves. Pick up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life like I have. And trust the perfect son. The question for us is, will we trust in Jesus not to do a magic trick in our lives, but to make, him son, make us sons like him? Will you see your identity in being a child of God because of Jesus and therefore trusting him? And if you do, will you live for him? laying down your rights so that you can show the world around that you are living for the king who died and is coming back again and calls you his child. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that so often we make our lives and even you about us. We want lives that are comfortable and cruisy. We want our lives to go well and we miss the reality of what Jesus has come to do and who he is. We ask tonight as we think through who this Jesus is, that you would capture us with that picture. You'd help us to see that he is the son who has come to give us life and life that lasts forever. Help us, Lord, not to live our lives for ourselves, but to see that true life is found in depending on you, not chasing magic, but trusting the miracle that Jesus died for us. And would you send us out into your world, pointing the world around us to him, helping us to live for life to the full that is found in Jesus. Would Jesus be our front and center? 
as we live in the incredible joy of knowing that we are your children, called your sons with an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Let that vision, Lord, captivate each and every one of us tonight that we might live trusting you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.